Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Thursday, January 25th and I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here at the City Club. I am pleased to introduce today's forum which is part of our Education, Innovation and Authors in Conversation series. Our speaker today believes a perfect storm is upon us and our educators are in the middle of it. He tells us that identity issues that often incite and divide us can actually be our way out of that storm. Dennis Shirley is the Florencia and Mark Gabelli Family Faculty Fellow and Professor of Formative Education at the Lynch School of Education and Human Development at Boston College. Shirley is a scholar of educational change who helps schools around the world improve teaching and learning. He focuses on the frequency of conflict between the ideals of educators and the reality of power and politics. He has published numerous books on education and what it looks like to be an educator in the 21st century, especially after COVID lockdowns changed the landscape of education as we know it. His most recent book, The Age of Identity, Who Do Our Kids Think They Are and How Do We Help Them Belong? Co-authored with Andy Hargreaves, is rooted in classical and contemporary theories of identity and explores how we can, can and must engage with young people's identities in their fullness and complexity. If you have a question for our speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and our City Club staff will try our best to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club, please join me in welcoming Dennis Shirley. Thank you. Good afternoon, friends, and thank you for coming out to this uh, foggy weather that you had this morning. I hope there were no accidents. Coming from Boston, I feel your pain when it comes to unpredictable weather. So yes, I've been invited to speak about this strange thing called the age of identity. What on earth could be meant by that? Well, here's the hypothesis. The hypothesis is for pretty much the last four decades in education, our school systems were focused on students' academic achievement and their effort. It was all about working really hard, focusing on some test score results, boosting those up, and then if that all worked, Bob's your uncle. That's great, we've done our job, now we can go home. What's on the TV tonight? Okay, right, great. But here's what I try to do with my life's work in education. It's really simple. I go out to schools and I interview people, I observe and try and figure out what on earth is going on in this building. Schools are interesting places. They're filled with young people who've got all kinds of interesting questions, who are exploring different parts of their identities. There are educators in there who are trying to help these young people get what they will need 
so that they can succeed in life or at least have a fighting chance. The community is involved. There's counselors. There's all kinds of people. Some of these buildings, we've got dozens of languages that are all interacting with the dominant culture in the United States. We've got people of different racial, different ethnic uh, backgrounds, different gender identities, different sports teams. But we're not going to talk about what's happened with the Boston Red Sox. That would be impolite. <laughs> For those of you that know, OK? That would, we're not going to talk about the Patriots either, OK? <laughs> Maybe afterwards. Is there? I thought I saw a pub down this. Never mind. OK. <laughs> so, so we've had this age of achievement and this age of effort. And now the hypothesis from these observations in schools, mostly in Canada is the research I'll talk about today, but we've also done research in the US, Germany, Korea, too many places to list. The sense of the educational system, the culture shifting now a bit. Something's happening. So school systems are more and more focused now on getting kids engaged with learning in the first place. We can get them engaged with learning. Maybe that will help with their academic achievement later on. We're also more and more concerned about our young people's well-being. How is it to be young today? The statistics are bad. The statistics say our young people are having a hard time, that they're more anxious, that they're more lonely, that they're addicted to technology, but don't want to be, but are. And just to kind of indicate how hard that is, one of the first things I have my students do is to read an article by a professor about how her students don't want to be glued to technology during their classes, but they can't help it, <laughs> okay? So, so well-being is in trouble right now. That's what all the statistics tell us. And then we also have this identity issue that's kicking around out there somewhere. So the hypothesis, if you'll bear with me, and we can discuss this during the Q&A, is that we are moving out of an age of achievement and effort into a new educational age of engagement, well-being, and identity. Okay? So that's kind of the first thing that's out there. Now let me kind of move into identity with you. Identities are very complicated. If we had more time, we could do a little exercise where I'd ask you to list a few different parts of your identity. And when I do this with audiences, people will say really interesting things. So often they'll say their race, their gender. Often they'll say where they're from. Often they might say their religion. Sometimes they'll say things like my hair. My hair is my identity. Thanks, my friend Diane, who gave me that one. <laughs> okay? I just talked to some young people who are in here, and, and they said more personality traits, like creative, honest, hardworking, but also international. What does this mean? It means, evidently, that we contain multitudes. All of us are much more than one thing. For all of us, there's much more to us than meets the eye, okay? Now, we live in a real world where people like to tell us what they think our identity is or should be. 
So for the high school students in the room, you should get a few $10 words out of professors, right? Otherwise, it's not really worth the lunch and all that. Well, maybe it is, get out of the building. Anyway, never mind. Sociologists are people who study society. They study how people interact. When sociologists study identity, they come up with two categories. The first one is our ascribed identities. It's what the world puts on us and tells us our identity is. The second one is our achieved identity. So the world can put on me one identity, and I say, I don't want that identity. I'm going to achieve this identity. Maybe the world says, well, I'm from a certain kind of neighborhood, so the expectations are low, but I'm going to defy that. I'm going to prove uh, that I can accomplish a lot. Okay? That's the difference between an ascribed and an achieved identity. Now then, what does that mean? It means that every single one of us, all of us in this room, the folks passing by out on the street, we are always negotiating our identities. They're not fixed. They're not static. They're in a process of evolution. So thus far, I've told you that our identities have a personal dimension to them. But guess what? That's not static. It also has a developmental direction to it. So for those of you that study psychology or the study of the self, the self goes through different stages in life. High school students in the room are going through what psychologists would say is a conflict between role confusion and identity consolidation. Role confusion and identity consolidation. So what does this mean? It means if you're a high school student and you get confused about what the world wants from you and what you want for yourself, it's not your fault. <laughs> That's the developmental stage that you are going through. Similarly, if you're in the middle of your lifespan, then you are probably struggling with the tension between generativity, creativity, productivity, and stagnation on the other hand. So generativity is when you're kind of trying some new stuff, you're developing new interests, you're finding new friends, you're moving in new directions. Stagnation is when you're stuck, when you do the same thing. Okay, I don't know how many of you saw the TV show Parks and Recreation, but there's a character in there, Ron Swanson, and every Friday he goes to the same restaurant Every Friday, he gets the same medium, stare rate, um, medium rare steak, excuse me, senior moment. Good thing I'm not running for president. <laughs> that one would get me in trouble, wouldn't it? And he always has the same scotch whiskey, right? And he's perfectly happy doing that. But looking at it from the outside, it's very static. It's a very predictable form of existence. And then there's a third stage for those that are older in the room, not talking about myself, no, not me, which is a struggle between integrity and despair. And integrity is when you're able to kind of pull everything in your life into a nice, meaningful whole. And you feel like you can pass on a better world to a rising generation of young people. 
And despair is when you feel like, oh man, we messed up. Oh my gosh, what kind of a world are we passing on to the younger generation? I'm so sorry, right? So the important thing for us to notice with these things is not only does the self have multitudes, these ascribed and achieved selves, but it's also going through a developmental process. Here's the good news on that. If you're struggling a bit, if there's some disequilibrium, if you're not entirely clear where your identity is on one day or another, that can be a prelude for further growth. Okay? So if you're struggling, if you're having a hard time, that can be enormously creative and beneficial for you long term. So please don't think, oh, gee, there's something wrong with me. Every human being, from the newborn baby to the oldest senior citizen, struggles with an evolving identity. That clear for everyone? OK? I don't want people going around blaming themselves, saying something's wrong with me. Guess what? It's hard to be a human being. Did you get the memo? OK, so we've looked at two parts of identity so far. First, it's personal. Second, it's developmental. Third, it's generational. It's generational. Young people in the room, you ever feel like, man, these older people, they just don't get me. What's wrong with them? I'm trying to explain. They do not understand me. Older people, do you ever feel like, what is wrong with this younger generation? I don't recognize my country, my world anymore. It's so different. Again, guess what? There's nothing wrong with you. There are generational differences in our identities. Now, there is a person whose name was Karl Mannheim. He's what they described as the person who invented the sociology of generations. So guess what? There are people that study generations and how they change. And what Mannheim said is there'll be certain crystallizing incidents that give a generation its special, unique generational identity. So for people of my generation, I remember precisely, exactly where I was when I learned that President Kennedy had been killed, when I learned that Martin Luther King had been killed, and when I learned that there was a person on the moon. Okay, those things really shaped that generation. Generation Z coming on later, they were in school during 9-11. Those folks all remember exactly where they were when that happened. And for the young adolescents, and the all, actually all the adolescents in the room, you all have something very different from the older generations. None of us were young adults or children when the COVID pandemic hit. None of us. That means that it's sometimes hard for us to understand where you're coming from, of course. There's also technological changes that are involved. Not many older folks are on TikTok Last time I checked, right? So there's all of these changes that are happening, and they shape who we are in the world. Okay? So bear with me. We're still going strong here on identities. We've got personal aspects, we got developmental aspects, we got generational aspects. Now let's get into some societal or even political aspects. It is the free speech club, right? You know? <laughs> OK, so 
I could kind of say, well, there's these personal aspects, and that's kind of what psychologists studied. And then I could say, okay, there's this developmental stuff, and people like Eric Erickson studied that. And then I could refer to Karl Mannheim. But where identity politics comes from is in a really different space. In the 1970s, there was a black feminist lesbian group called the Kambahi River Collective, which issued a statement. And in that statement, they called for a new form of identity politics. And identity politics would be based on people's myriad identities that all come together in one unique combination. A lawyer by the name of Kimberly Crenshaw took that activist movement and studied research on battered women in shelters in Los Angeles. And what she found out was that it wasn't the same if a woman was white and middle class and heterosexual in a shelter, if she was black or if she was immigrant or if she was poor, the quality of the services was completely different. And then as Crenshaw dug deeper, she was willing to kind of really get bold and really get out there. She said, you know, a lot of what's going on in feminism is actually geared around white women's experiences. So there's a lot of racism in feminism. And then she also said, in a lot of black politics, there's a lot of blindness to sexism or homophobia. She put that all out there. And okay, now here's, this is not a $10 word, this is a $100 word, this is because it's got even more syllables. Intersectionality became a term that was really invented by Crenshaw and that is now used all over the place, used in the United Nations, used in all kinds of university classes. And what intersectionality does is it allows us to get up close to some of the parts of people's identities that can really hurt, where you're missing the point if you just kind of give people separate labels and line them all up. Instead, we have to look at how these different identities are oppressed in a way that makes some people's experiences excruciatingly painful. Let's call that critical intersectionality, okay? Looking at those dimensions. But anybody here like Drake? Rapper? Okay. Okay. So that's interesting, right? There's a lot of people here, not just the younger people, not just middle-aged, but some older folks who are Drake fans, right? So Drake does a lot of interesting things with his identity. And, and what is his identity anyway? Well, he's, he's black, he's Canadian, he's a rapper, he's Jewish, he does all different kinds of entertainment. He actually is so Canadian that he didn't even move to Hollywood. Imagine that. Drake offers us a different way of we could think about intersectionality, which it could be it's celebratory. He has a good time, he has all different kinds of music out there, but a lot of it's very assertive. It's very dynamic, it's very energetic. It's forward-looking, has a social criticism, but also it's filled with joy of life. Okay, so now we have critical intersectionality. 
But we also have celebratory intersectionality, if we wanted to say that about Drake. But there's a third form of intersectionality I'd like to propose to you, which is conflicting intersectionality. Conflicting intersectionality is when there's a group that might be oppressed in some ways, but oppressing in others. Okay? If I could, and I can say this because I taught at a nice Catholic institution for a quarter of a century, <laughs> is just because Irish Catholics were oppressed for many centuries, and I, I do have an Irish passport. My, my grandmother was born in Ireland. Just because one was oppressed for many centuries doesn't mean that one has a license to then turn around and oppress other groups. You know, and, and in all honesty, some of the least welcoming campuses for our queer young people have been on Catholic campuses, if I can put that out there. And I can speak honestly to this because my daughter's bisexual and had some pretty rough experiences at Boston College. So conflicting intersectionality pushes things in an even harder direction where we kind of have to say, well, okay, oppressed in some regards, but oppressing in others. Let's be honest about what's really going on out there. So what does any of this mean for a discussion about identity of young people in schools today? Well, what it means is we can look in schools and we can see some groups of kids getting suspended more than other groups of kids. Do they just kind of happen to be black young men more than others? What's going on with that? When kids get bullied in our schools, do they more often than not happen to be the queer kids that are bullied? And who speaks up for them? Who's, who says anything for them? When our kids with learning disabilities are sent down to the basement room at the end of the hallway, okay, we all know about this. Does anybody speak up and say, wait a minute, this is not the least restricted environment. This is segregation, pure and simple. So with these different tools from intersectionality, we can look at power. We can look at privilege. We can look at who's included and who's excluded, which is why it's so important, okay? So, thus far, four dimensions of identity. By the way, this is really good for me because as a teacher, I'm used to having a blackboard or PowerPoint slides. <laughs> if I could share something about my identity, I was feeling completely naked coming up here. <laughs> but you guys are helping me out, bless you, bless you. So we've got our personal, we've got our developmental, we've got our generational, we've got our societal and political. Where's this all going? Well, for me, and call me old-fashioned, but I actually believe in education. I actually believe in the power of education to transform lives. Why? Because it did it for me. It did it for me. You know, you might kind of think, well, this guy has all the markers for lots of forms of privilege, but let me just say, you know, father, military background, over in Vietnam, trying to figure out where do I stand when I'm 14 years old. It was confusing. Fortunately, I had a few teachers. Doesn't take a whole lot, just a couple, just one or two, who kind of says, hey, you know, you want to do something? Let's, let's chat. Let's see what's going on. So education can change lives. It certainly changed my life. So if we have those four foundations, and imagine that they're the four corners of a pyramid. And imagine that we wanted to build an educational pyramid where human flourishing was at the top. 
where our young people are able to explore different parts of their identities, whether they can develop their athletic prowess, they can become musicians, they can become artists, they can become mathematicians, they can become astrophysicists. They can explore all these different things that our fragile little planet has on offer. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could figure out what we can do in our schools so that those young people really can thrive? Here's a few ideas. First, we need a new narrative for education. Achievement and effort doesn't cut it anymore. I talk with superintendents all the time. We've got, we got to do something else to engage our young people. So in Ontario, they tried this as a narrative. What is essential for some is good for all. What is essential for some is good for all. What does that mean? OK, well, let's just imagine that you're in a wheelchair, right? And you need to get into a building. And federal law requires that, so a ramp is built for you. That's essential for you, right? That's essential for you. But let's imagine that one day, you know, you're a keynote speaker and you're invited to Cleveland. And you stay in a hotel. And they put up a nice ramp for the folks in the wheelchairs. That's good for me. Okay, so something that was essential for the folks in the wheelchair is good for me. Okay? Let's imagine that learning about world cultures, let's imagine about learning about different races and religions is especially important for our young people who feel marginalized, who feel like their background's never recognized, that they want to have a chance. And maybe their teacher does something like a word of the day. So every student in this class who has an international background gets to teach one word of the day, just, just to kind of hear what it sounds like, you know, just, just to kind of listen to it and to understand its deeper meaning. That could be essential for those students. But it's good for everybody to know that we live in a world of 8 billion human beings, and it'd be really good if we figured out how to get along. Maybe you don't have any Native American or indigenous kids in your class if you're a teacher. Right? But maybe you know that in Native American or indigenous cultures, circles really matter a lot. Not so much everybody lined up like the Prussian military, all in rows. Right? Or that outdoor learning matters. Okay? Or that thinking about the self happens in a completely different framework, as in, when I think of myself, I think of my ancestors seven generations back, and I think of my descendants seven generations forward. That's pretty different than what you read in Self Magazine. So can we do this, friends, colleagues, students? Can we do this? Can we figure out a way to create a new narrative where what is essential for some students is good for all of them? Let's see if we can exercise our collective imagination to do that. So we need a new narrative. And then we propose that we need some new principles undergirding education. What are those principles? They're really simple things. They're things like humility, generosity, forgiveness, solidarity, bravery, character traits. Many of these you can find in the world's religions and in indigenous knowledge systems. We can connect the virtues that we want our young people to have with these other cultures, 
uplift them, valorize them in our schools. So we have a new framework, we have 12 principles, and then we need to think of things drawing on Crenshaw and intersectionality. We need to think about things like representation. Who's in the room? Who's making decisions for whom? If the right people aren't in the room in terms of the diversity of our populations, what are we going to do to get them in? And then because identity work is heart work, it's not just brain work. We need empathy. We need sympathy. We need to kind of dig deep down into ourselves. Maybe we never had an experience about a particular form of persecution, but maybe we can remember being bullied. As I mentioned, my father was in the military. He moved around a lot. I knew what it was like to be the new kid in the class wondering if I was going to make any friends. That, I like to think, helps me to understand what it's like to be an outsider. And then we need learning. We all need to learn so much about each other. There's so much that mystifies us about other human beings, including my wife. <laughs> We've been married almost 40 years, and I'm still trying to figure her out. <laughs> Which means that when we're trying to explore identities, there's many, many, many different layers to it. And finally, I'd like to mention two last points here that um, fill out what educators can be doing for identity. Can we imagine schools where it's the whole school for the whole child? Where kids don't have to hide who they really are? Where they don't have to be ashamed about where they come from? What kind of accent they have? what the family's race is, if there's two moms or two dads at home. Can we imagine that future? I think we can. It's going to require a lot of our, our work and a lot of honesty. And then finally, the last part of promoting identities that I would propose to you as we think about what we can do to help our young people to flourish is can we create some space in our schools for self-determined learning? Self-determined learning is a term that's used by Yang Zhao. And that means space in schools where students can do, learn what they want to learn for just a few hours a week. They can set their own projects. They can explore what they want in that time period. They'll have to be accountable for it. Still have to present it to somebody. Still have to share it. Still can develop their writing skills, public speaking, all of that stuff. But there's some time in which they can say, I'm really interested in this musician this athlete, this poet, this scientist, and so forth. So it's an ambitious agenda that we have right now. But from where I'm looking at things, we don't have a whole lot of time. Young people grow up really quickly, shockingly quickly. right? And so I'm asking you to think with me about a few things. Think about whether we're moving from one age of education to another. Think about these five different dimensions of identity, personal, developmental, generational, societal, and educational. Think about what we can do so that our young people feel like they can explore the fullness of their identities and be welcomed in our schools and in our societies. As educators, we have to be optimistic. We don't have a choice. The minute you become pessimistic, you need to get out of the profession. I draw optimism from our young people. Students I teach are wonderfully honest. They tell me things like, I actually don't know how to have a conversation. 
I was at home for two years during COVID. I know how to type, but I don't know how to ask somebody, tell me about yourself. I might like to be your friend. Okay? So they know that they've been through a lot. And let's see if we can listen to them with sympathy, with humor, with dignity. And if we can, then maybe we can fulfill the subtitle of the book, which asks the question, who are our kids and how can we help them to belong? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your kind attention. We are about to begin the audience Q&A. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here at the City Club, and today we are joined by Dennis Shirley, co-author of The Age of Identity, Who Do Our Kids Think They Are, and How Do We Help Them Belong? We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, our students, which we have many. Please uh, feel free to ask a question. And those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to text a question for our speaker, please text it to 330-541-5794. That number is at the center of, uh, of your table on that sign there. And our City Club staff will try their best to work it into the program. And we have our first question, please. Hello, my name, oh, is this on? Oh, it is, okay. Um, hello, my name is Kyle Williams. I go to MC Square STEM High School. I am 15 years old and a sophomore. And I wanted to know that, you know, when it comes to the LGBTQ community and other communities such as, I mean, marginalized groups such as that and, like, being gifted, academically gifted, there's a pretty big overlap right now. Like, for reference, me, you know, oh, I'm, you know, black and I have, uh, I've been, you know, gifted since I was in sixth grade. And I've known a bunch of other people who are not just a part of my community, but are a part of other communities who have the same um, overlap with them. I wanted to know if maybe you think the age of identity and the age of accomplishment are coming together on our generation in, and also allowing, I mean, COVID allowing us to think more about ourselves to exemplify the age of um, identity even more. I take these one at a time. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of, Kyle, it's a great question, as you can tell from the audience response. And um, what's, what's beautiful about the way that you formulated it is it gets us past thinking of binary, binaries. It's this or it's that. Because actually, the way that history tends to unfold is there's a constant interaction between different phenomena. So um, I think that you're putting your finger on something really important, which is we wouldn't want to go so far with engagement, well-being, and identity that we forgot about achieving something worthwhile, right? Which is enormously fulfilling, and which I would want everyone to have is a sense of achievement. I mean, everything from, you know, just kind of building a house to baking a loaf of bread to um, you know, playing jazz guitar or wh whatever it would be. There's so many fora for excellence. And so I, I think that you're, you're onto something really important there. And I'd encourage you to stay with it. And it would actually be a great question for uh, 
researcher <laughs> to ask is what's the relationship between sometimes some a marginalized identity, a threatened identity, and a certain achievement ethic, a certain motivation ethic. So if I understood your, did I answer your question there? Yeah? Okay, great, great question. Can I have an easy question now, please? <laughs> Hi, my name is Leon Reimchisel. I go to the Gerson School, and my teacher is a middle school history teacher in Florida where they have placed restrictions on what books they can read, what topics they can teach, especially in history, on certain identities, especially again with the marginalized groups. My question is, do you have any ideas of how these teachers in those restricted settings can support their students with these like diverse identities, and especially for marginalized groups? That's not an easier question. Okay, well, I was warned. I, I was warned, you know, the city club here, that I had to be ready. Um, you know, it, it kind of breaks your heart because I, uh, I've taught online classes with um, teachers, four teachers from Florida, from Texas, from those states. And um, I, I mean, I, I don't know how you teach about American history or contemporary cultures or kind of much of anything if you are excluding topics as important as gender and race from the syllabus. So, I, you know, the, the, the short answer is I don't know the answer. The, the, the second thing that I might try, though, would be to see if there's some ways to present material that students, you know, introduce students to poets. So, you know, the expression, we contain multitudes, or I think it's I contain multitudes, actually comes from poet Walt Whitman, who is gay, right? So I, I, don't, I don't want to say that, let's say I think there's ways to be creative in those environments because I just don't want to give up um, where educators might be able to introduce some topics and then encourage the students to do independent research. That's the best I can do right now, sorry. I do know that in the states they're planning any number of test cases because those, I think that those statutes are unconstitutional and I'll see how they can hold up in court of law. But thank you for a great question and thank you for your concern. Yes, please. Uh, good afternoon, my name is Merle Johnson. I'm on the State Board of Education. Uh, in Ohio and other places in the country, we have a legislature that has no respect for identity. As a matter of fact, they pass laws that are very harmful uh, to the identity. So you have a very, I'm assuming you have a very supportive audience here. Um, in a couple of sentences, what would you say to a group of legislators who um, have no idea why identity is so important and really don't care? You know, th th there are answers on, on different levels. There's um, scientific answers about gender dysphoria and all the different ways that we can be in the world and all the different kinds of people that we can love and all the different kinds of ways that we can love. So, so there are those answers. Um, what, what puzzles me about what happened here yesterday um, is that 
um, isn't the idea of a free and pluralistic society so that people can choose their own way that they want to live without other people getting in? And Pierre Trudeau said this, it's not the government's business to get in people's bedrooms or tell them how to govern their lives. So ultimately, this, these kinds of issues are going to have to be battled out um, in elections. I, I don't know, don't... So I have, at this point, I have so many friends who are trans or who are parents of trans young people that are kind of wondering what, what's going on in the world. But um, I, I thank you for your question. I, I share your concern and outrage about what's happened here. You know, my daughter is another person who's only applying for jobs in certain states where, you know, she, could, she, know, she has the sense that she could feel welcome. We can do so much better. We, we, we really can. Hi, we have a text question. Considering the heightened coverage of elections and wars that are often leading with violent and bullying language, how does fear impact developing identity? Oh, man. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> fear is, I think, a very, very powerful determinant of, of identity, playing on people's fears obviously is extremely successful at developing a base for a political movement. Um, and so we're in a difficult situation where we, um, hmm. Salman Rushdie called it the outrage industry. You know, somebody's always waiting to kind of get outraged about something, to denounce somebody. Or Charles Payne called it the principle of negative interpretation. We're never going to give anybody the benefit of the doubt. So it's, it, it's incumbent upon us to try and figure out what's really going on. Are fears legitimate? Are they manipulated? Are they contrived? What, what is the purpose of whipping up all of the fear? I think that's kind of the best that I can do with your question. But do you want to ask a follow-up? Because I'm not sure that I, did I answer it? Um, it was a text question. However, if the person would like to text for additional information, we can possibly <laughs> All right, please. I got two easy, short questions for you. <laughs> so, for starters, my name is Kalia Gill, and I am a student at Cleveland School of Architecture and Design, and I'm a junior. And I love your lecture. Um, on identity and education, and I just want to know that, like, is it as important to, like, or does it matter if you don't know as much as others around you expect you to know, like, how, how important is, like, intelligence, and is it okay to not know everything? And I also wanted to ask, like, what are some ways to find your identity? And because people are trying to find themselves and figure out where they want to go. Well, um, so I'm a professor, so I, I must think that knowing lots of stuff is important. 
And um, I guess what I would try and encourage every young person, I say this all the time, please try and get as smart as you can because some of the challenges that are coming our way are gonna require us to just really, really be super smart. So I'm, I'm old fashioned, um, you know, get down to your local library, sit on a hard chair, take out a notebook, take tons of notes, get inside of a person's argument, then read somebody who has the exact opposite point of view and take notes on their argument and then have another page where you write down what you think, you know, but there's, there's no way to get around it. And honestly, I get irritated sometimes with professors who say, oh, it's not that important that you're smart. Yeah, I have a PhD, you obviously thought it was important. So, so I encourage you to do what you can to, to get as smart as you possibly can, while also making sure that you know, you're, you're paying attention to people around you, that you're, that you're also growing as a human being, you're letting your heart grow. You know, if, a, if you're talking with a friend and his or her voice starts cracking, you're paying attention to the emotions, not just the words, right? Some importance being relayed. And also other things like physical excellence, like athletics or having a way you can express yourself through a saxophone or a drum set or something, you know? So all these kind of different parts that can make you a really interesting um, person who's making a real contribution to the world. So that's the answer to the first question. I'm trying to be really honest. And then the second question you just shouted again, Oh, how do, you, how do you go about finding your own identity? This is a really hard one, because one of the hard things in life is people sometimes give you really bad advice. <laughs> like they think that they're giving you good advice, but they're giving you actually bad advice. So now I'm going to give you my advice. <laughs> you know, th th this was in the, uh, from the ancient Greeks, and it's also in, in the Bible. Know thyself. Know thyself. You know, when Walt Whitman says we contain multitudes, that means that you're really interesting. So if you can, try not to spend too much time with people telling you how you need to be and behave and all that stuff. Make sure you got some quiet time for yourself. And you can kind of see, well, here's, here's how I'm feeling right now. I wonder why I'm feeling this way. Or, you know, I know I should be doing this, but I want to do that, and I want to do that. Why do I want to do that? Is it because it's something bad, or is it because it's something I think is important? Okay. So that's, that's really important. And in this quest to try and understand yourself, you can kind of see if you can find some people who can help you on that journey. And guess what? Older people might be trying to find themselves too. Right? <laughs> right? Just because we're older, you know, we got all this stuff coming in, you know, doesn't mean that we got everything figured out, okay? So, so we might be even more confused, okay? So these are great questions, and they're hard questions, and it says a lot. Some good things are happening in Cleveland, man. I can tell you if you guys are throwing me these hardball questions. Okay, yes, please. Um, hi, my name is Jeremiah. Uh, and I attend Hawkins School. Uh, I was wondering, there is, time is so limited, and there is so much to learn, always. 
and with like labels and identities being infinite how do we how do we tackle like learning all of them and like getting uh, a grasp on like accepting everyone on how they are I, I think that um, there, there's a couple of things. One is to kind of read a lot, and the second thing is to look at the network that you're in. And that means that, so Aristotle said, one of the most important things that you can do in your life is choose good friends. Choose good friends. It's like one of the most important things, right? And I mean good friends, not good flatterers. Okay? Some people think that a friend is somebody who always tells you that you're right. No, a good friend is somebody who's going to say, hey, that was bad. You need to go back and apologize. That wasn't right. Okay? So one of the things is really, if, as you're looking at the friends that you're choosing, is there some diversity in there? You know, people coming from different walks of life. Okay? Um, just kind of try and be open to, to what they're bringing. Um, but I think that it's, if we can kind of think of it, being human as continual opportunities for growth and renewal and not so much like I'm going to get this body of knowledge and then I'm going to tuck it away and then I'll be all set. Because it just, it never works out that way. There's always something to learn. There's always a blind spot that we've somehow missed. And that's why we need friends and family who are going to be honest with us and help us along. I, I hope that helps with the question. Yes, please. Hello, my name is Kaylick Stubblefoot. I go to Cleveland Architecture and Design. Um, you talked a lot about how the older generation has a very, there's a really huge miscommunication of how to understand the younger generation and the older generation. And I wonder like, why is it, why is it not taken into account that we are the next generation? So what is done now will happen to us later but what is done later won't affect anyone now. So, you know, well, like, respect, like, once, the, once the, other, the, the last generation passes on, we're the ones in control of what happens to this planet, what happens to this world, what happens to our society, what happens to economics, what happens to agriculture, everything. It's all really our decision, but it's not our decision right now. So how is it that, like, how do we go about being able to make an effect on what are we gonna do for our future? Because it's our future. Well, um, you know, the, the, the difficulty for the young is that they're um, dependents. <laughs> you know, that, that they're dependents and, um, and don't have much political power, except indirectly, right? So the honest answer is that we would like it if older generations were more ethical, more far-seeing, more sensitive, better listeners and all of that. 
but that's often not the case. So what do you do in a real life situation where you're really worried about your future and you're up against what in some ways is a powerful opponent? You just gotta learn as much as you can. You gotta develop social relationships. You gotta develop civic capacity, the ability to make change happen. And it's long and it's hard and it's discouraging, but it's so fulfilling. Now, I just wanna slide in here because this is important. We do research around happiness. There's one psychologist, Roy Baumeister, who did really interesting research. He found out that people who are really happy are often shallow, and people who are really fulfilled often took a lot of hits in life, but are quite deep. They ask hard questions. They're willing to take hits for the team. So one of the things we all have to think about is what kind of a person am I? Now, anybody who's always taking hits for the team is probably a bit boring, and everybody who's always looking after their happiness, I don't want to be around for very long because they're irritating. <laughs> right? But this is something to think about, and I, I wish I could say, oh, yes, you know, sacrifice years, do hard work, you'll be happy in the end. You might not be as happy as somebody else who wakes up every morning and says, what am I going to do for myself today? Okay? But... The world needs people who care about the future of the planet. So we have to kind of sometimes model, we're willing to take a hit. And that's hard. But I, I think it's important. OK, we got one more here? Hi. Yes, please. I'm Zoe. I'm a sophomore at Hawkins School. So I have a question about college admissions and identity. Yeah. So it seems nowadays, a lot of times, students, they have to take really challenging courses or be in multiple clubs. And they do this in order to look better for colleges. So how do you think this affects the student's sense of self if they're just like trying to make themselves a marketable person for college? I suspect it makes young people rather cynical, <laughs> right? It's, it's kind of like, well, I'll be, you know, I'll be a big brother or big sister because that's what will look good on my CV. Now, I'd like to think that if they do those kinds of things and they have those experiences, they're transformative enough so that it's not just kind of an empty thing that you put up there. But we have what... Uh, one Korean-German philosopher calls, we've built something called the Burnout Society. We ask our young people to kind of do everything, right? And then we work like crazy in the United States. Man, these Europeans have a good deal, six weeks paid vacation every year, you know? So one of the things to think about there, and this is really hard, because you have to play the game enough to succeed in it, but you don't have to play it all the game all the time. So what do you hold for yourself? Your inner cathedral, your inner space, where you really truly are, your, 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 your true self. Can you find a way to preserve that? So give that nasty old world what it needs, but not everything, okay? Because, well, if I could, you know, the, the biblical language would be the small, quiet, still voice of God. It's not always battles and all that. Pay attention to what's going on deep down inside. I think those would be my parting remarks. Thank you.
Thank you so much to Dennis Shirley for joining us at the City Club today. Forums like this one are made possible thanks to generous support from individuals like you. You can learn more about how to become a guardian of free speech at cityclub.org. Today's forum is also part of our education innovation series in partnership with Nordson, as well as our authors in conversation series in partnership with Cuyahoga Arts and Culture and the Cuyahoga County Public Library. Our gratitude as well to Deborah Morin and the team at the Center for Education Leadership at Cleveland State University for their partnership today. We would like to welcome students joining us from the Cleveland School of Architecture and Design, Hawkins School, the Gerson School, MC Squared STEM High School, St. Martin de Porres High School, and Wycliffe High School. Your questions were incredible. Thank you so much for being here today. We would also like to welcome guests at tables hosted by Honesty for Ohio Education, Hudson City Schools, Nordson Corporation Foundation, and the faculty and staff at St. Ignatius High School. Next week at the City Club on Monday, January 29th, we will welcome the Reverend Naomi Tutu, race and gender justice activist. She will join us 25 years after her father, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, spoke at the City Club. Uh, she will be in conversation with Chichi and Kamara of Enlightened Solutions. And on Wednesday, February 7th, we will be back at the Happy Dog in the evening at Detroit Shoreway taking on education journalism. Megan Marnichek with the Cleveland Transformation Alliance will lead the conversation with Cameron Fields, Amy Morona, and Connor Morris. This forum is free and open to the public and came straight to the City Club from our City Club Education Committee. You can learn more about these forums, how to join the Education Committee, and others at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to Dennis Shirley, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club. I'm Cynthia Connolly, and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.